Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon from hot and humid but clear Florida. This is Dr. Simon, and this is part three of a series of shows entitled How the False Stories of Mental Illness and Mental Health Can Steal Your Life. And this is a series of shows I've been doing for a good number of years entitled The Stories We Live By. And I want to talk today about an individual, any individual who might want to uh, find some help for emotional problems, uh, something called psychotherapy, and talk also to those individuals who hear this who may already be in what is called psychotherapy. Let me introduce an idea, very important, uh, and that is the difference between a relationship that is democratic and a relationship that is authoritarian. Many, if not a majority of human relationships can be authoritarian. The politics of any relationship, whether it's really a political relationship, a relationship between a citizen and a leader, or people within a family, or between a therapist and what's called a therapist and what's called a patient, can be authoritarian in that it is assumed that there is a hierarchy between the individuals in the relationship and one is somehow inherently inherently superior to the other. Um, It is expected in a large group that is authoritarian that there will be those who are in charge And it is assumed that they are superior to those that lead, that are followed, and that as you go down the hierarchy, those at different levels have to be obedient to the people above them and have to control and demand obedience from those who are below them in the hierarchy. And I have discussed this many times in other shows, but it really creates and defines the nature of the relationship. Often the struggle in a relationship is who's in control based upon who's better than who. And you can be better in your mind or someone could be better than you in your mind based upon how someone looks what kind of talent they have, uh, where they were born, uh, race in, 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 in American society uh, is a constant struggle for people of color not to allow themselves to be defined by people who are supposedly called white. And by the way, none of us are white, none of us are black. We're just people 
with a few genes that are, uh, 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 you know, held responsible for a number of physical features. Um, but that in the hierarchy, uh, there is a notion that the one person is better inherently than the other and has the right to punish and hurt people lower in the hierarchy um, who refuse to accept their inferiority. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go all the way through these differences because, uh, again, I have so much in my hierarchy and a lot of stuff in my book that really describes this at great length. But what emerged historically for a variety of reasons are notions of democracy. And notion democracy says that no matter where anybody is in a relationship, as human beings, they're equal. They have the same rights, and they have the same privileges, <clears throat> and they have the same responsibilities. And if there is going to be a leader-follower system, the leader has to be chosen by the people who are willing to be led. And in this kind of relationship, power is never forced on an individual. Uh, there is no coercion unless somebody breaks rules or laws and in the public sector there is power that will be exercised by the police and by the courts in personal relationships uh, all manner of things can be brought to bear but instead of force often in a democracy there's a negotiation that takes place and this is very important when it comes to raising children. Children are not the equal of adults in what they know and their ability to satisfy their needs and behave in ways that are safe. There's much they have to learn. And in a relationship, a parent-child teach a student relationship. Power is exerted, but not power that demeans, diminishes, or forces an individual to see themselves as inferior. There's negotiation. And in such relationships as children grow and learn and come to understand their place in the hierarchy, it's important for them to learn and understand what they need to be successful. And the way this is done is by teachers and parents and others modeling the behavior they would like to see their child learn so that the child understands why it is they're being taught this kind of behavior. That it's not for the parents' need or for the 
teacher's need, for the politician's need, it's for their need. And when there is conflict, it's worked out without force, without coercion, or without one person disrespecting and putting down another by saying you're no good, you're evil. In short, the things I talked about in the last two episodes where in these hierarchies, people are told they are inferior. I know what's good for you. And if you are not obedient, you will be punished. Fear is going to be the model and the emotion that defines respect. And in many hierarchical relationships, there is no respect. Fear, however, is defined in a way as respect. So, the difference is enormous. Children can't be allowed to run their own lives. But if they see the modeling, if they're treated with respect, if they see and learn it's in their interest to behave as parents and teachers would like them to behave, conflict is reduced and a kind of learning takes place so the child understands and experiences what it's like to be respected as a human being, what it's like to be genuinely loved, what it's like to be understood in any negotiation between people. If there is respect and there is no coercion, each individual has a chance to express their thoughts, their feelings, and their desires without abuse. And this really does occur, and it really does happen. Many of the people I worked with who came to me for therapy, and many of the students, really came from situations in which they were part of a hierarchy and obedience and fear of punishment were really the nature of the relationship. And under those circumstances, they don't express their thoughts and their feelings and often learn to be afraid of even expressing ideas and emotions that would be punished, not even verbalizing or saying to themselves what it is they think, they feel, they wish, or they want. And this is often the unstated problem that brings a person into therapy or seeking professional help. So, I've already discussed the damage that's done in a relationship between a mental health professional and somebody seeking help the moment the diagnosis is given, the process I call the degradation ceremony, where the individual internalizes the idea that they might have already had, there's really something very wrong with me. I'm no good. I'm bad. 
And the relationship is set up that way. It's not open. It's not forthcoming. There's no respect. There is the threat of coercion. It's my way or the highway, says the parent. The therapist says, I can't work with you if you don't tell me, if you don't talk to me. There's a lack of patience. In the kind of relationship I learned to strive for with the people who sought my help, one in which I would try to have them learn something, I used this diagnostic category. I diagnosed them because otherwise the relationship in most cases wouldn't be paid for. As a professor, I learned to hate the fact that I had to grade people. I would have a class of 30, 40 people, all of whom had different interests and values and ideas, all of whom had a curriculum that they had to master at the same time, in the same speed, over the same weeks, and therefore ended up being graded for their efforts with terrible consequences. And I'm not going to go into this. I really haven't talked about a democratic teaching. But the teaching system that exists now was essentially authoritarian. The teacher knows, the teacher lectures, the teacher shows. The students from grade school on often sit with hands folded, often feeling fear, resentment. And the teacher sort of pumps information without the active participation of many of the students who get lost, who don't understand. And this can also happen in a relationship between what's called a psychotherapist and unfortunately what's called a patient. Now, I should back up a second here and say that if you read my book, I use the word psychotherapy, but I put therapy in quotes. I put patient in quotes. I put treatment in quotes. Because unfortunately, all the terms of this unique and potentially important relationship in which one person may well help another individual understand how they came to dislike themselves, how they came to judge themselves, how they came to desperately find ways of, of trying to ease their emotional pain only to make it worse because they're caught up in being authoritarian to themselves. They don't understand themselves because they're too busy judging themselves. As they were judged, their relationships are troubled because they're too busy judging and demanding obedience from some that they see as inferior to them and pretending to admire and respect and convince themselves that they like a person of whom there is fear who puts them down.
Now, there can be pieces in a relationship that are in part democratic and in part authoritarian. But once, as I described in the last episodes, and I do in my book and in many of my episodes, an individual internalizes the idea and accepts it as truth and reality that there is something profoundly wrong with them. That they're not as good as others, but they're really much better than others, people. That they resolve conflict by being obedient to those who have power over them and demanding obedience and fear from those they believe are inferior to them. In many ways, life becomes miserable, a struggle. And I can't go into all the many, many ways this struggle takes place. But as I say in other times and other places, to be really happy, to, to thrive as a human being, I think we all need to be loved, respected, heard, treated as full human beings, and at the same time, treat others the same way, be part of family, part of the human race, part of our country, part of our school, part of our family, immediate family, and at the same time be individuals who are different from everybody else in this world, see it differently, even when they understand how they are similar and how others are similar to them, when they find something in the world that interests them, that they can master, and I don't care what that is. I became very happy as a teacher and as a psychotherapist, especially when as a teacher I understood that I had to stop lecturing my brilliant lectures because most of my students were bored, didn't follow, and didn't understand. I had to set up my classroom in a way that they spoke, and I did a lot of the listening. And I directed the lesson with questions in the same way as my professional life. I had to find a way to have them understand the grade was a necessity and the diagnosis was something we entered into together. Because if they wanted to pay me separately from the medical system, that worked out. I could be flexible with fees. I never sought in my entire life to become wealthy, which unfortunately is one of the driving forces for so many individuals in our society. Money makes you worthwhile. Money brings power. Money, 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 money. There is nothing terrific about poverty. There's nothing good about not being, having a place to live in which you feel comfortable uh, 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 and can pay the rent uh, and buy food and have a decent diet and be able to uh, take time off and have a good bed to sleep in and all of the things that bring comfort. But in itself, it's really not enough. And when money becomes power, and when money 
or the lack of it defines your worth, it's a terrible, terrible problem and a struggle. Define the life that is meaningful, a life that's democratic, in which there is respect, in which people hear each other, very important, like each other, but can also find an area of life that they're good at and enjoy and help others in the process. Some of the happiest people I have ever known have been chefs, people who cook for others, keeping people alive, nurturing with good food, incredibly important. I talk in my book, in fact, I think I told the same story twice. Young man didn't want to be in school. It didn't interest him. But his father demanded he be in school. And he was afraid that the father would reject him and not love him. And so we talked about it. And I said, what do you like? What do you love? He said, I want to be a chef. I love to cook. I cook the family dinner on Sunday. Everybody thinks I'm terrific. I would like to leave here and become a cook. But my father, it'll kill him. He says if you leave school, he'll die. I suggested to him that maybe his father should never run for a bus because that could kill him even worse. I asked him, do you think your father really loves you? He said, yes, I think he does. And talk to him about your desires and your wishes and how important it is. I didn't say it. We talked about it. I asked him questions about it. And he decided, he talked to the father, and they made a deal. He would drop out of the college, and he would go to a culinary school in New York for one year. And if that didn't work out, he'd come back to school and satisfy the father's desire that he have an academic education. A year later, he shows up, happy man, happy young man. He was a graduate of the uh, a fine school in New York. He was now working as a sous chef in a first-rate restaurant in Manhattan. This was a happy young man. He had found his place as an individual. How few of us have the opportunity to find our place? And I see psychotherapy with the quotes as a process to help people break out of relationships, change relationships with themselves and others from authoritarian to more democratic. And to that end, if you have a relationship with a therapist, first and foremost, it's a human relationship. Do you know your diagnosis? Can you discuss it in advance before it's made? If you're going to get a diagnosis, understand that you're not mentally ill because such a thing doesn't exist. Unhappiness exists. Fear exists. Anxiety exists. Self-hatred exists. Contempt for others exists. An inability to relate to others as human beings exists. But when someone is unhappy about these things, it's not an illness. It's a problem. And nobody ever walked into a therapist's office without recognizing on some level they have a problem. 
Sometimes people come in, talk about their lives and the stories of how others hurt them and don't see their role in it. And the question is, I, I finally ask, after hearing how they've been victimized, how they've been brutalized, how they've been disrespected. Are they now participating in the same way and doing the same thing to others and importantly themselves that were done to them? How many parents I've worked with over the years, people who are parents, who complain about their parents having done terrible things to them, hating the relationship, escaping, ending the relationship, who now complain about their children and are doing the exact same thing to their children and blaming the children for the problem that they were blamed for by their parents. This is the stuff that gets exposed if an individual can feel safe, not be judged, feel actually understood, and very importantly, as a relationship between people grows, and some of the better relationships I've had in my life and shared with the stories from other people who are professionals is that some of the best relationships they ever had were people whom they liked and who liked them. I write in my book, and I've said many times, Living with someone, like a wife, a friend, a husband, it's as important to like each other and respect each other as it is to love each other. Love of a child, love of a spouse, love of somebody will put, allow you and make you to put their needs equal to or even before your own. How many parents and how many wives and husbands I've worked with over 50 years who did love each other, couldn't stand to be in the same room because they didn't like each other. So in a relationship that goes on for six months, a year, two years, maybe more, between somebody who is called the patient and someone who's called the therapist, if there isn't genuinely mutual respect and liking, this is not going to lead to anything good. There will be power struggles, secrets kept, fear. It's a human relationship, and hopefully it's democratic, and hopefully the person who becomes the patient understands from the beginning that while the therapist may know something, hopefully knows something, they can help them learn to ease their suffering and to find a more creative way to live and work out better relationships, whether it's interpersonal, whether it's sexual, whether, whether it's any aspect of life that is causing them unhappiness and misery and in turn causing others who live with them at misery. When this occurs... They understand that there is no power structure, and they understand when there is a power structure. Uh, I read a study some time ago that today the average psychiatrist, many psychiatrists, who used to in the past do 
right? We used to do psychotherapy, real psychotherapy in a democratic way. Now, write the prescription out within 10, 12, 15 minutes of meeting the patient. There is no relationship. Uh, I expect when I go to a doctor, for them to examine me, I give my, my body over to a doctor who does a colonoscopy or does a surgery on me. But not before I feel I can talk to them, I can trust them, not only as a doctor, but as a human being who sees me as a human being. Some time ago, I, I have developed, I've learned at my age of 80, nothing goes away. And I developed uh, an issue with my leg uh, um, in which because I put more weight playing golf on my left leg, which is my back leg, uh, it strains the, the muscles and it strains the knee and the hip. Uh, the, the piece of cartilage that attaches to the hip and down the knee becomes inflamed. Right? So I went to the doctor, and one doctor, and he gave me a shot of cortisone, and it worked for a week like it usually does. It came roaring back. So I went back again, and I, because I've had other injuries, and I know that physical therapy can often be the answer, if not for a cure, at least for a way of living with the problem so it doesn't get worse and doesn't create a problem that uh, 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 an enjoyed activity has to stop. In fact, the happiest professionals I've ever met during all the years of my life, professional life, especially the 10 years and nine years that I worked in nursing homes, were the vocational and physical therapists. They know what they're doing. They have a clear protocol. Most of them are patient. They know what they're doing about, and they help. So they don't have conflict. Some do, but they don't have real conflict. And they treat the individual and are treated in return as human beings in a respectful and helpful way. So I went back to this particular orthopedist, and I said, can you recommend um, physical therapy, a physical therapist? And he looked at me, and as he walked out of the room without even looking at me, he said, it won't help you, and that was it. And I will not, excuse me, I have to have some water here. Um, that was it. I have to feel when I'm with a professional that as a human being, I am respected and heard not dismissed. And that should be in every relationship we have. And it's no different going to a doctor who's a psychologist, who has the title psychotherapist, if it's a social worker, or if it's a medical doctor who has a, a license as a psychiatrist. I'm going to stop, except for a couple more points, one of which is, Know the diagnosis that's made. Look it up. You can today easily Google any name. See if you agree with it. See if you understand it. Very important. All professionals keep notes, progress notes, and diagnostic statements on the people they see. It's routine. 
when I go for my three yearly physicals, my doctor doesn't greet me. The PA, the physician's assistant does. And she says, do you need any medication? She takes my vital signs. And she says, you want a copy of the diagnostic report, the blood test? And on the screen, is his, if he's kept notes, they're there on the screen. I get the report and I go through it because it's about me and it's mine. People I learned who ask, and I've had this in discussions with other therapists when we're having meetings over the years, when they're asked, what did you diagnose me as? What are you writing about me? Sometimes people don't know that what has been written about them is seen by others. When I worked in the nursing home, I noticed one particular nurse would go for the folder of every patient I saw after my notes went in. I had to stop that. And I learned many years before that, if she's going to look, she's going to look, and I can't stop it. But I never put anything in a note that I wouldn't share with an individual whether they asked or not. No hierarchical statements, no put-downs that pretend to be how smart I am and how insightful I am to what's wrong with them. What most of the, many of the therapists, not most, but many, would say to a client who asked them, a patient who asked them, can they see what's written about them? Why do you want to know and make it an issue of their pathology? In psychoanalytic terms, it's called resistance. You're resisting the authority of the doctor, and it has to be resolved in the doctor's favor, not yours. All of these things become critically important in a relationship. All of these things disappear in a psychotherapy without quotes in which the diagnosis comes first and defines the relationship in one way or another. The relationship contains a hierarchical element. As a client and a patient, and I wish I had a better word for it, see? Because when I write it, patient in quotes is clear, but not when I use it as a word. And I, 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 I talk about this uh, all the time. It's not a teacher-student relationship. Um, it's not a true client, attorney-client. It's not parent and child. It's not a, a priest, a minister, or a rabbi, and a parishioner. It's a unique relationship, new in history, can be a wonderful relationship, but it just has the wrong name and starts with the wrong ritual. Uh, I don't think it'll change in my lifetime, but for those of you hearing this and you are in emotional distress, find someone, but be your own advocate, your own individual, and your own knowledge. Understand that what's wrong with you is what you do and what, based on what you don't understand about yourself. That it comes out of 
authoritarian relationships in which you're really not respectful of yourself, but an authoritarian to yourself. Put yourself down. And I occasionally slip into that, especially I'm playing golf. Oh, you shithead, why did you do that? Why did you hit that ball that way? Today I laugh. In the past, there have been times in my life that I didn't laugh. That I got upset. It's only a game. But it has to be seen as only a game. I think I'm going to stop now. Nobody has called in. I keep hoping that people might call in and discuss this with me. Uh, If you're forearmed when you go for professional help, if you understand how damaging the diagnosis is, if you have to and willing to go through with the degradation process, can it be as an equal and understand it's an expedient? I once discussed this with a client, a patient, or whatever I want to call them, in quotes, uh, um, and, and the individual said to me, you mean when we agreed to this, we're defrauding the insurance company? I guess we are. I don't think insurance companies, medical insurance companies, should be involved. Unless there is a separate plan put aside in which a description of the problem and a suggestion for the solution is written in without calling somebody mentally ill, disordered, or any other horrible, degrading name. And if you understand that, and you walk in as an equal, and you understand you're in charge of the relationship, not the doctor, not the therapist, you have to agree to a fee. You have to agree to a time. You have to stay in the relationship only as long as you wish to. Unfortunately, there's so much of what goes on in institutional psychiatry and the people who work in institutions that if they think you're really too crazy, they can go and call the police, have you taken in to custody, go in front of a judge, a magistrate, who will never see your point of view, only the doctors. It's totally hierarchical. Have you put in so-called mental institution a mental hospital, which is really, under those circumstances, a prison, and force you to have treatment, force you to take pills, force you to have electroconvulsive shock therapy, force you to talk when you really don't want to. This is not a help to anybody. It's destructive. And I hope that those people who hear this will not let it happen to them, not do it to others. So, time to turn on the news and see how bad the political situation is, see how bad the storms are, see how bad the fires are, because as our climate changes, and it is, as the weather becomes more extreme, as the oceans are continually degraded, as we destroy our forests, as we destroy the animals that we require on this planet to live with us, as this continues, 
as we are authoritarian to the world we live on and think we own it, we're killing ourselves and our children. Uh, Too bad you can't do psychotherapy to the world, as I understand it. But time to say goodbye. Take care. I'll set up another show. I have a colleague who would like to do a show with me next week, I think next Monday. And I will see you all then.